Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Miriam Knight Show, where we explore the many faces of consciousness and action. As the publisher of New Consciousness Review, I get to see the latest books and films having the greatest impact on the global awakening and interview their authors here. I feel particularly privileged to have as my special guest today, Greg Braden, a New York Times best-selling author, visionary, and futurist, whose work merges his expertise in leading-edge science with a breadth of knowledge and passion for the wisdom of our past. His leading-edge books such as The God Code, The Divine Matrix, The Spontaneous Healing of Belief, and Fractal Time have been published in 17 languages and 33 countries. Today we will discuss his latest book, The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. Welcome, Greg. Thank you for joining me. Miriam, it's great to hear your voice. I'm thrilled to be on your program, and thank you for the, the beautiful introduction. And uh, as I was, I was hearing the words, I was, in my mind, uh, thinking about how long you and I have known one another, worked together, and uh, I realized I don't know the answer to that. How long have we worked together? Do you know? About 15 years. Has, has it been that long? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so we worked together 15 years, and thank you for having me back. <laughs> You haven't worn out your welcome. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, I'm excited to be with you today. We do have a new book, uh, The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. And this is the first time that you and I have uh, had the time, the opportunity, I think, uh, to talk about this book. So I'm, I'm going to follow your lead today, and I'm thrilled to go wherever your curiosity and intellect uh, lead. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, sense of power. Now, Greg, your earlier books have all explored themes of a, what I would call a more metaphysical nature, but the turning point seems to me not only to be firmly rooted in this earth plane, but to be an urgent wake-up call and, and a kind of guide to navigating what I suspect we all feel are the turbulent waters ahead. What inspired you to write this book now? Wow, that's a great question to begin with. I'm going to take about a half a step back and just address the the theme of the other the other books. Uh, Miriam, I had a really interesting uh, interview, the last interview of the year of 2014. And the interviewer began by asking me a question. He said, Greg, why can't you stick with one topic? He said, you're all over the map with your books. Are you writing about science? Are you writing about spirituality? Are you writing about the earth? Are you writing about time? Are you writing about quantum physics, you know, why can't you stay with one topic like other authors do? <laughs> and uh, it, was, it caught me off guard. It was an interesting question. And, and what I shared with him is that while each of my books in the past does, in fact, uh, explore uh, a unique topic, the common theme that draws them all together is they're all about us. Each book explores one facet of us and our relationship to ourselves, to one another, to the earth, to our time, to the past, to the future, uh, and, and the way we go about dealing with what life brings to our doorstep. So in a very real sense, the books are all about one topic, and that topic is us, and that's a big topic. And I could tell it wasn't the answer he was expecting because he immediately went to a station break, and when he came back, never said another word about it. So, <laughs> so yes, the books of the past... Um, this is the 30th year that I've done this work in one form or another, and uh, uh, each book has, in fact, explored from the, the perspective of both science and ancient wisdom and spirituality 
one facet of us and our relationship to the world. The new book, The Turning Point, continues in that theme, uh, and it is applying it to the practical realities of what we're facing uh, in our lives today, Mary. And I, the last five years, I've, I've been privileged uh, to be on every continent of the Earth uh, without, well, with the exception of Antarctica. I haven't been to Antarctica, and that is a continent. I uh, haven't been every nation, but I've certainly been on, on every continent. And the book reflects the, the questions and concerns that I'm hearing from people, not just in the United States, but, but all over the world. People are asking uh, two big questions. What's happening, and why is it happening? That's the first question. The second is, what can we do to make our, our lives better? So the best minds of our time are, in fact, uh, telling us that we are living what they call a time of extremes. It uh, doesn't mean that only bad things are happening, or it doesn't mean that only good things are happening, for that matter. But it, it, it reminds us that we're living in a time where big things, big, big changes are happening in our world. And I'm, I'm just going to say to you, I'm going to speak directly to our listeners. Uh, listeners, if you're hearing this broadcast, I know that you know uh, exactly what I'm talking about. We're, we're seeing the biggest shifts in our lives, whether we're talking about economics, whether we're talking about health, whether we're talking about... Uh, social cohesiveness, families, education, jobs, industries. I mean, the world's just changing so really, really quickly. So the book begins, Miriam, by giving a voice to the fact of that change, where there has been so much reluctance in the past to even acknowledge uh, that the change is happening. And, and often in mainstream, when there is uh, the opportunity to acknowledge the change, it's viewed as a compartmentalized change. And what I mean by that is if you listen to the pundits on mainstream media, they'll say, you know, yeah, you know, big changes happening in the world. All we have to do is blank and everything's fixed. So all we have to do is fix the economy and everything's okay. Or all we have to do is fix climate change and everything is okay. Or all we have to do is solve the problem of terrorism and everything's okay. They, they tend to compartmentalize. Uh, what are, in fact, the components uh, of a broad general shift that is, it's been difficult for mainstream to embrace. So I felt like it was important to, to do that in the book. We'll just be honest with the readers right off the back. Yes, back. Uh, yes, we are experiencing these changes. And the book is based upon peer-reviewed science. And, and I think that's important. Uh, to mention right off, and especially when it comes to things like the topic of, of climate change, for example. Uh, and for listeners that may not be familiar with that term, uh, I think we all know anybody can write anything and put it on the Internet, and we all see that. So just because a scientist who may happen to work in some department uh, of NASA, for example, writes his or her opinion on climate change doesn't mean it's scientific fact. Peer-reviewed science is when a scientist does the research, uh, they write the paper, they submit it for acceptance in, in a group of their peers, and this is where the term comes from, peer-reviewed. The peers will circulate that paper through uh, advisory groups, through critiques. They will try to find out where the proposal of the paper is, is wrong, if it is, or where it's right, if it is. And it can take often several years. For this process, and when it is finished, it is published in peer-reviewed journals and it is accepted in the scientific community. And, and that's important because that simply is not happening with much of the information that our general readership, the New Thought community, 
is accessing that it's not peer-reviewed science. So we're getting mixed messages mm-hmm. uh, about what, what's happening in the world. So, um, so I, I wanted to begin the book that way, and I'll I'll just take a breath and stop there, <laughs> uh, and and uh, we can talk about that a little bit, and then uh, I would like to continue and share where the rest of the book goes and why it was important. For, I felt like it was important for me to write it. Well, two observations. One is that not only are these extremes um, uh, qualitatively uh, much bigger, uh, but they're also happening so much faster, uh, not only because of the, the incredible increase in population that you point out so dramatically in the book, um, but also because we're, we've kind of interconnected the economies, the, the interdependencies on resources, um, and you make such a, f- a, a perfect point that we have to look at the globe as a hol- holistically, as a uh, um, interrelated parts. You cannot try to um, fix one part in isolation without affecting all the others. So that's that's why I think your book um, just takes the reader very gently through the different aspects that we're dealing with. You talk about climate change, and you have actually a um, a, a kind of uh, independent view of that. Um, you you see climate change as being part of a natural cycle, don't you? Well. I- yeah, in the circles that we're talking with, I, I may, and I'm not bragging, I'm just stating this fashion, I may be one of the best qualified to talk about this because I am a degree earth scientist uh, and geologist. So I have had the opportunity to look at the data that my perspective, Mary, when I began hearing the really frightening perspectives, we'll just take a minute to talk about this, I think it's important, the really uh, frightening perspectives that, that were being offered. I prefer to let Earth tell her story. Let the Earth tell us about her past and the cycles of change that we go through rather than relying on the interpretation of an academic through a university or a professional corporation whose funding is dependent upon the story they're telling. Uh, I have no reputation to defend. My, my reputation as a scientist was shot <laughs> when I began talking about spirituality. So I, I have no reputation to defend and nothing to lose by sharing the data. And what the ice cores, I, I gained uh, access to the, uh, the ice core data from Vostok Lake in Antarctica. Uh, 1999 is when the data was created, and mid-2000s is when I first had access to the data. And it, it tells a very different story. The Earth is telling us a different story than what we're hearing in the mainstream. So I have to be really careful and very clear. We definitely need to get off fossil fuels. Uh, I believe we could have done it 50 years ago for transportation fuels. We've had the technology. Um, we had simply had to have the leadership in the world. I'm not saying it has to be American, but we have not had the global leadership to lead us to the, or to have the, uh, I guess, the, uh, uh, the, the perspective uh, and make it a priority for us to do this. So, so I believe we could have done it 50 years ago. I believe we need to do it now. Uh, what the data is showing us clearly is that the temperatures of the Earth, for example, global warming, they rise before the greenhouse gases ever rise. And that is counterintuitive to what 
we're being told in the mainstream that the, the greenhouse gases rise first and then the temperatures rise. The data simply doesn't support that statement. So what I say in the mainstream is we owe it to ourselves to explain why the data is showing us what it's showing us. Why do the temperatures of the Earth rise before the greenhouse gases do? And when the greenhouse gases do rise, we don't get a warming. We get just the opposite. We get a cooling trend, which is what many mainstream scientists who simply do not have a, a voice and a platform to share their, their views, that's what they're telling us right now is that we are going into a global cooling trend. Um, and it's not an ice age, the end of, of everything, but even a couple of degrees of cooling uh, affects the northern hemisphere uh, profoundly, where most of the people of the Earth live, where most of our food is grown. And the, the whole point of the book, and this is just one, one example, I make a statement, we're living in a time of extremes. And I think it's important to, to back that statement up. So I do talk about the extremes of the climate. I talk about the extremes of the economy. Uh, the extremes of uh, fossil fuel industry and the extremes of currency, uh, because these are all part of what we're living in. And, and I think it's important to, to acknowledge these things and bring them together in, in a real way. So I'm just going to pick up climate change. The, the question people say, well, if, if we're not causing the climate change, what is? And the data, the peer-reviewed scientific data from the proceedings of National Academy of Sciences released in the year 2000, clearly show that uh, it's what's called solar forcing or solar-induced climate change, that there are peaks and, and valleys of time when the energy from the sun ebbs and flows uh, that, that we uh, receive here on Earth. And we are just completing a very small peak, and we are now heading into a trough. And we've had much bigger peaks in the past, in the, the Middle Ages, a time called the Medieval Warming Period, MWP, for geologists. Uh, the variation was three times more than, than what we've seen in, in terms of, of temperature rises. Uh, it's intense, it's brief, people live through it. Uh, and the whole point, Miriam, is, is how, how can we be resilient to change if we're not honest with ourselves about the change? And if we are honest, then we simply shift our thinking so that we can thrive when the world changes, rather than being caught off guard, acting surprised, and, and this is where the suffering comes from. So, so yes, we are living a time of extremes, and, and I think it's, it's fair to say our world is changing uh, in ways that we have never seen in our lifetime, and that our lives are changing in ways that we're not used to, and I think for most of us, it's probably happening faster than we've been prepared to accept. So that means we've got to think and live differently now, more so than probably at any time in, in recent memory, any time in the past. And my perspective is that when the facts are clear, the choices become obvious. We don't need a government or a corporation or an academic to tell us what to do when we understand what's happening. It makes perfect sense to make the changes. When the, the facts are not clear and we see things happening that we do not understand, that's where we say, you know, what's going on? What are we doing? And people are in fear. And, and that's when we're vulnerable to, uh, to making choices that may not serve us down the road. So very clearly, this isn't about making anyone right or wrong. It's about being honest with ourselves about the facts so that we can be resilient to a time of change. Um, I want to clarify that. Yeah, there, there are two forces here. One is the, the denial of the uh, climate change phenomenon that took on political overtones. 
Um, and the other is the expectation that things can go on as they were. So go out and fix them, use some kind of technological fix, instead of accepting the reality, honestly, um, talking about it and talking about what we can do to adapt. And this is the, the sort of core message of your book, which is um, focusing on our response, the resilience of humanity, and what positive steps we can do to adapt to the changes. To, to Absolutely. Mary, well, before we get to that part, however, so, so we substantiate the claim. We are living a time of extremes, big changes, and the extremes have led to what is now being called a new normal. And what I'm finding, and this is fascinating, the audience is all over the world, this idea is a very, a very foreign concept to many, uh, many audiences. There's a sense, uh, and especially in the West, in Western societies, that life was chugging along pretty well uh, until something happened. And for some people, that something was 9-11. For some people, it was the economic collapse of 08, 09. But Things, you know, we had our ups and downs, but things were working pretty well. Then something happened, and that we are in this process of recovering and getting back to where things used to be, back to the old normal. And the, this is a subtle and powerful uh, idea. If we are clinging to this idea, excuse me, of, of what normal looks like, to if, if we are, are clinging to the the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings of, of what we expect normal to look like, my question is how can we possibly thrive in the new opportunities that are at our doorstep right now if we haven't made room for them, if, if, our, if our expectations are all focused on claim to, to the idea that we're comfortable with of what the world used to be, we're waiting for things to get back to normal. And, I know that's a, a big concept. Can I just share a quick story about what I mean sure. by that? I, I think sometimes stories are the best way to, to illustrate the concept. Are you okay with that? Mary? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, I think a lot of our listeners know my wife and I live in uh, a rural community in northern New Mexico, a uh, really rural community. Um, hours from the nearest airport, we're an hour from uh, the nearest grocery store. And uh, it has been especially hard hit, both by climate change and, uh, and the economy. Uh, ranchers who've been here for 300 years with their families have had to sell their, their herds or they've had to, uh, to let their crops go for the first time because the, the climate, that they can't grow the food to support the animals or, or to support their, their own livelihood. So it's been a really hard hit. So uh, last October, um, we went for a drive up through the mountain communities, the mining communities in northern New Mexico and into southern Colorado. It's kind of a continuous community. Uh, to see the trees turning aspens, there were beautiful blue skies, and just a beautiful time of year. We stopped at a convenience store for, uh, for gas, and I asked the clerk how things are in their community. It was a mining, small mining community. About 1,800 people lived in this little community. She said, when things, when the mines are open, things are good. Uh, people feel secure. They are willing to take risks in their lives. So they'll take on the debt to send their kids to school, for example. They have more babies. They'll uh, build bigger houses. They'll, they'll try new businesses and, and see if they can do those things. 
when the mines are closed, she said, life is hell. She said, everything grinds to a halt. Uh, parents won't send their kids to school because they can't afford it. They won't take the risk to try something new. Uh, they, the community stagnates. And she said, when that happens, they do anything they can do to get by until the mines reopen, and the mines always open again. And I said, wow, that's got to be a really, really tough way to live. I said, how long have the mines been closed in your community? She said, this time around. She said, the mines have been closed for nine years. Nine years? This community put their lives on hold, waiting for things to get back to normal, the normal that they're comfortable with, that they've known and trusted. And it, and it looks like it. The community is tired. The buildings are run down. The roads are shot. Uh, a lot of businesses have, have closed. And the reality is that those mines now have closed permanently. They're not coming back. And the community is really having problems becoming resilient to the change of what the new normal is all about. Mm. It's the new normal. We're living the new normal. The climate changes we know is with us for our lifetime and for our children. You cannot reverse the climate change. And I think it's, it's, it's not fair to, to people expect that. The economy that we have right now, we're looking at a generational shift in the economy. If the economy that we have, we're not going to see the kind of interest rates and we're not going to see the kind of industry that we've done in the past. We'll see something else. So the point is that new opportunity, we already have all of the solutions for all the big problems in the world. And I talk about this in the book. We've We've got the solutions for thriving economies. We've got the solutions for uh, for communities. 5,000 people are living in a community in northern Arizona. They create 100% of their own energy for their community. They grow 100% of their own food. They have 100% employment rate for everyone that wants to work by supporting the systems that grow the food and produce the energy. Greg, hold. And, hold. And that's 5,000 5, people. We know how to do these yeah. things. The point is... We have it, and we haven't made room for the new because so many people are clinging to an idea of a world that no longer exists. Absolutely. Well, if you've just joined us, we are speaking with Greg Braden about his book, The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. Um, Stay with us. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. And we're back. My guest is Greg Braden, talking about The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. Now, just before the break, you were talking about some uh, community, and you mention a number of them in your book, who actually have uh, adapted to the changing new normal. Can you uh, carry on with that? Uh, th- you, you mentioned a number of them in your book that were fascinating. Well, I, I can't, it, and, and it's, it's just to illustrate a, a concept. The fact is we're living a time of extremes. The extremes have led to a new normal. The new normal provides opportunities for each of us to thrive personally, our families, our communities, our entire societies, to thrive but to embrace those possibilities, we've got to think differently. And the reason I was sharing the story of, of one community uh, in northern, northern New Mexico that was, was suffering right now is a simple fact. I just want to say this, and then we can let this go. We have never been given the opportunity to mourn the passing. 
of a way of life and a way of living that we all have known and become comfortable and accustomed to in our lives. And it doesn't have to be a, a big outward ritual of any kind. It's simply the acknowledgement that things that we used to enjoy, little mom and pop shops used to fix my boots, you know, <laughs> every month, or fix the, the tires of my car, and, and the, the intimacy of a community in many instances, the way we've known in the past, uh, it, it is morphing into something very, very different. And just by acknowledging the fact that it's not there and that we miss it, that's where the morning begins. It opens the emotional space to embrace the new possibilities that allow us to thrive. And there are a lot of them out there. And that's what this book is all about, creating resilience in a time of extremes. Uh, when I use, we, we've used this word a couple of times now, and I, I'd like to just go ahead and, and define what I mean by resilience. Uh, you're okay if I do that? Sure, right sure. Uh, I know that the word is tossed around casually and is, is used in a lot of different contexts. Uh, traditionally, we think about resilience as the ability to bounce back or spring back to some healthy functioning after a, a trauma in our lives and our communities. So. You know, we say when Hurricane Sandy, for example, hit the East Coast, the entire community found the resilience to rebuild and carry on. Or for families, when they lose sons, daughters, husbands, wives, brothers, sisters, loved ones in a battlefield, uh, halfway world in Afghanistan, for example, those people find the resilience to, to continue with their lives. Those are good definitions. They work in some instances. When I began researching the book, my question was, is there another kind of resilience? It goes even beyond bouncing back or springing back, and, and the answer is yes. Uh, it is the, the topic of study from the uh, Stockholm Resilience Institute. They're studying these things there. It's called Expanded Resilience, and it's where we think and live every day in a way that allows us to thrive no matter what the world is showing us in all conditions. And the reason that's possible, Marion, is because we have been honest with ourselves uh, and truthful and factual about the events of our lives in the world. When we factor in the reality that we're facing, then we have the opportunity to factor that reality into the way we think and live. So when things don't go our way, we're not caught guard. We don't have to go back to square one. And this is where expanded resilience comes from. It, it happens to us in our daily lives. Um, uh, as individuals and families in our own living rooms, it applies to entire communities. So we're living a new normal, and in our time of extremes, and expanded resilience allows us to thrive in that new normal. So the book begins by talking about personal resilience. In our bodies, it is a physiological process that allows us to withstand the stress of change. Uh, and we are all experiencing change in ways that we simply aren't used to. I'm, I'm not going to say it's right, wrong, good, or bad. I'm, I'm just going to say we're not used to it. And, and I get asked this question all the time. Marion, it's fascinating. People say, you know, Greg, what's so different about today? You know, our, our parents, they have big, big challenges in their lives. Their parents have big challenges in their lives. So, you know, why would it be any different for us? And it's a really good question. And the answer surprises a lot of people. Uh, and the answer that I offer is simply this. As humans, we are, we're very resilient, we're really good at adapting to change, and we're really good when we have one change at a time to deal with. Uh, you know, uh, 20,000 years ago, our ancestors had to deal with the Ice Age, and, and they did it successfully, I and mean, we're here today, that's a testament to that. 
um, our grandparents dealt with the Great Depression, 1929, early 30s. Uh, parents saw the uh, Second World War and the Korean War. Uh, we rose and met those crises and did a really good job. What makes today so different is never has a single generation been asked to embrace so many different crises and each one of such great magnitude all in the same period of time. We mentioned some of these already. We've, we're on the verge of uh, a new Cold War, uh, the tensions throughout the world. Uh, so global war is, is a very real threat right now. Climate change, very real threat. Um, the, the industries that are disappearing, the jobs that are disappearing, the economies that are teetering on the brink of collapse, all of those uh, are all happening at the same period of time. And, and I'm just going to interject here, the only reason that those systems don't work is because they're not sustainable, Marion. So in a very real sense, uh, what we're seeing is the, the breakdown of systems that don't work so they can be replaced with systems that do. And when we think about it from that perspective and, and when we realize we've already got the, the solutions to all the big problems, it actually is, is a very, very beautiful time, a, a rare, precious opportunity to reset so many of the systems that haven't worked for us in the past to make life better for us and for our children and, and future generations. This is probably a good place to tell us uh, the difference between a tipping point and a turning point. Absolutely. That's, that's just where I was going. Our media and uh, tr conventional uh, uh, media, conventional wisdom, is really good about uh, telling us uh, of tipping points, frightening tipping points. We hear about them all the time. A tipping point is a place where uh, where the debt of the world becomes so great that the economies collapse, or where the carbon dioxide and the greenhouse gas is so great that you know the, the climate change is uh, is just devastating to to us all. We're we're all familiar with these frightening tipping points. What we rarely hear, and it's a scientific fact, is that before we ever reach one of those frightening tipping points, we must pass through a turning point, at least one, and often many turning points. Turning points are opportunities that present themselves when we're honest with ourselves, when we see the facts and, and we are willing to embrace what the world is showing us. Those, those frightening tipping points, they never sneak up and happen all at once. They always show us signs along the way. Those signs are the turning points where we can change the course of uh, and, and the direction of where events are leading, so that we never have to have those frightening tipping points, and and that is where our opportunity for resilience comes from. So the, the book describes those things, and when we talk about personal resilience and community resilience. Um, personal resilience, as I began, is is a, a physiological process. Um, we all are resilient to some degree to life. We have to be or we couldn't be here. We have what's called a baseline of resilience. And it's interesting, studies have shown uh, we have about a 60-day 60 uh, 60-day cycle that we go through where when we face a new change, first 10 days or so, we're really up for the change. And, and there's a steep upward trend that occurs. And then we kind of plateau and flatten out for maybe 30 days or so. We we're in there, hanging in there, and we're dealing with whatever the, the new crisis is. 
then we began to go through uh, uh, a time uh, of emotional burnout. And I think our, our listeners could probably relate to this, where that curve begins to climb until we actually uh, sometimes experience uh, physical exhaustion. Uh, and a perfect example of this, and I'll just share on a personal level, and I believe a lot of our listeners could probably relate to this, my, my mom's health <laughs> is uh, declining, and it's happening in a way that I didn't see it coming, so it caught me by surprise. Um, and I have now become a, a power of attorney for her in her life because she can no longer make those decisions. So financial, medical, housing, uh, I mean, everything uh, is now I'm legally responsible for those things. And at first, when that awareness dawned upon me and I, I embraced that responsibility, uh, I, I fit that curve perfectly. In the beginning, boom, I was doing all kinds of research and, and really trying to stay on top of things, plateau, trying to maintain. Uh, and then there, there was a point, I, I didn't go to physical exhaustion, um, but emotionally. I was taxed, and I could, it was taking a toll, and I had to look at, at doing something differently. And that was where the opportunity to actually apply in my own life, what I'm writing about in the book and what I'm teaching, uh, the experience of heart-brain coherence and the, the raising of what is called heart rate variability that, that strengthens us so that we can embrace change, more change in a really healthy way. So we described this in, in the book, and I know some of your guests have, have talked about these. You've had the, the people from the Institute of HeartMath on your program. I did, yeah. So for listeners that may not be familiar, this is one example of uh, the kind of research that's being done. Uh, the Institute of HeartMath, uh, capital H-E-A-R-T, capital N-A-T-H. It's all one word, but there's two caps in there. Uh, they are a pioneering research institute in Northern California. Uh, experts from many different fields have left their respective professions and they pool their resources with the Institute of HeartMath to explore the power of the human heart in ways that we, unconventional ways that we typically don't think of. Uh, we all know the heart pumps blood, but the heart does much more than that. And so the Institute of HeartMath is the premier research institute uh, uh, doing that right now. Now, we talk about pumping blood, but we also um, pump oil, and energy is kind of foundational to uh, the running of, com of modern society. Um, tell us about the, the role of energy and where you see it going. <laughs> well, energy, uh, the world depends upon energy. And, and one of the reasons I, I wrote about this in, in the book uh, as a geologist, it, it made sense to me to, to write about the role, the potential role that energy could play. When we talk um, about resilience, uh, as I mentioned, we talk about it on a personal level, and, and there are ways to increase personal resilience um, by following many of the techniques. And I'm going to invite our listeners to, to check out the Institute of Heart Math, go to their website. Uh, share some of the experiences uh, and techniques in the book to increase personal uh, heart-brain coherence, heart rate variability increase, and that, that helps us to embrace change in a really healthy way. On a, a, a community level, 
there I, I talk about ways to, to create this resilience. And in community itself is an answer. Coming together um, in, in ways in the community to embrace the change. And there are blueprints and maps in the book to help us do that. On a global level, I talk about potential scenarios that could uh, create the, the turning points so that we avoid a lot of the, the frightening possibilities that, that we hear about from the media pundits all the time. And energy is, is one of those. Um, it is, we have the technology to shift the world's focus from the kind of energy that we've used in, in the past. And whether we're talking about uh, steps in the near term or steps in the long term, we can all make a difference moving away from the kinds of fossil fuel use for uh, generation of electricity, for example, that, that we've used in the past. The reason I talk about it in, in the book is because it is an example of, uh, of a policy that could come about. I'm not saying it will, because it would take a lot of cooperation to do it. But it's a place where global leaders could come together, recognizing the suffering that people in all nations are going through right now. Uh, and in a, a, a very visible act of unprecedented cooperation, make a choice to move the world uh, toward or into a much more sustainable form of energy, and it reduces the, the conflict that surrounds so much of, of the, uh, the exploration for oil uh, culturally, and um, it reduces the even the playing field when it comes to, to energy making it available for, for people uh, in all walks of life. It was part of the book that described potential scenarios that could unfold. Uh, <clears throat> what I was talking about in that part of the book, you jumped ahead of me a little bit, what I was talking about in that part of the book, Marion, was uh, the potential scenarios for change, uh, three big potentials that, uh, that the experts are seeing right now. Uh, and I described each of them. One of them would be a uh, that the world continues as it is until a, a big catastrophe happens that forces the change. So maybe it's an economic collapse, maybe it's a war, whatever it is, the change has to come from that. I believe we don't need to go that route. Many people believe that we are. That's one scenario. Another scenario uh, is a global reset, and that was kind of what I was just describing, where the leaders of the world consciously come together. That's the maybe the G10 or the G20, they come together and they say, look, the world changed, our nations are in trouble, our economy is in trouble, let's be proactive and work together to address this. Uh, let's take six months or a year and retool our nations, our power grids, our infrastructures in terms of where we get our power, move away from coal and, and oil into for transportation fuels and for generating electricity. We need those for other things. We, we will always need oil in some respect. There's nothing chemically that can replace oil. Uh, we, each of us, there are about, there's a list of about 6,000 items that we use every day in our lives. And many people don't even know, they don't realize that they're associated with petroleum byproducts. Yeah. Prosthetics for limbs, uh, the, the plastic that we use uh, in hospitals for tubing. And yeah. Absolutely. Oil is just too valuable to burn as a fuel. It, it is. And, and burning it as a transportation fuel, creating greenhouse gas, is something we don't need to do. And we have other alternatives to do that. So, 
So the leaders of the nations, the, the most powerful nations, they could do that. And, I, I'm going to get into hot water if I don't take a break. Okay. So then we have one more after the break. Okay. Um, Actually, I, I have a particular interest in that uh, alternative. Um, so, yes, we're talking with Greg Braden about his book, The Turning Point. And please stay with us. We'll be right back. And we're back with my guest, Greg Braden talking about the turning point and extremes. Greg, I was particularly interested in the idea of energy because it has such ramifications in every aspect of our lives, not only um, you know, in the food we eat, in the clothes we wear, but also in the geopolitical tensions around the world. It, it would totally make a shift. I was, I was very intrigued by the technology that you actually point to as being uh, a solution in waiting, the thorium cycle reactors, because I actually had worked with um, the creator of the, the developer of the thorium cycle, Alvin Radkowski, who was on the staff of Hyman Rickover. He was involved in the development of nuclear submarine reactors. And uh, he was like a voice crying in the wilderness because the uranium um, camp had taken over. But the, the, the beauty of thorium is that it produces energy without the deleterious uh, effects of weaponized uh, byproducts. Can we talk about that just, just for I'd a love to, yeah. You know, Mary, what I knew was going to happen, our time is just going by so quickly. <laughs> this, this is important. So in the book, I want to, this is context. In the book, uh, so here's the big picture. We're living in time of extremes. Extremes have led to a new normal. The way to embrace that normal is through uh, creating enhanced resilience. Resilience happens on a personal level, physiologically. You describe that in the book and techniques on a, a social and community level. Uh, there are blueprints in the book to bring people together in community to work for the goals that they agree upon as a community. Proven blueprints, I uh, was involved in these in northern New Mexico, rural communities, where people actually don't even like to, to get together. <laughs> to they, they live in rural isolated areas just because they want to be isolated. So bringing those people together was, was a challenge to begin with. And then on a, a global level, and now what we're talking about are, are scenarios on a global level that can create turning points of positive change before we get to the frightening tipping points of uh, uh, change that, that creates a lot of suffering in people's lives. In the book, one of the examples that I've given uh, is with regard to energy, because when I step back and look at the big issues of the world, I said, what, what, what issue is a common denominator that would touch so many different facets of so many people's lives? And energy is one of those uh, jobs, industry, careers, every family. Uh, every industry needs energy. It does have geopolitical consequences, um, uh, you know, locally and, and, and globally. So in looking at scenarios, <clears throat> um, the first thing that comes up, people ask about free energy. Um, and I have to tell you in all honesty, uh, Miriam, I, I was in the, the aerospace defense industry. I worked with uh, Tesla technology, uh, Reich, Reich uh, technology. Um, I've seen the work of John Keeley, <clears throat> all of them hold promise, 
I have yet to see a commercially viable form of what we would call free energy that you would want to depend upon if you were in the operating room and you wanted continuous power or if you want continuous power from an air traffic control tower while you're on an approach in a bad storm. Uh, the potential is there. Uh, commercially, it's not viable right now from what I've seen. And, and there are things I haven't seen, but that's, that's my perspective. What is viable, because we've already done it, is a technology uh, that is called thorium technology. It's not the answer. It's a stepping stone in the right direction. It's a move uh, in, in the right direction. So what a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with was during the Manhattan Project, when the, uh, the, the crash project to, to find the technology for the weapon that uh, everybody believed the world was searching for. Uh, we all know about uranium. What a lot of people don't know is there were a number of other minerals that were explored. Um, uranium was chosen because we were in a war, and its byproduct was plutonium that could be used for weapons. Uh, there were other minerals, and one of them is called thorium. It's element number 90 on the periodic table. It's very abundant in the Earth's crust. It's very inexpensive. There is a tr tremendously greater amount of thorium than there is of uranium in the world. But what makes this particularly attractive is uh, that it takes much less thorium to create the fuel. Uh, a thorium generator cannot melt down the way a uranium reactor can. And the, the reason for that is because the warmer it gets, the less efficient it is. It has to actually work from a cool, a, a cool perspective. And and the this is so bizarre, but the the fuel uh, is actually the same as the container. So if something goes wrong, the fuel and the container, one and the same, stop working. Uh, it cannot overheat because the reaction doesn't work as the heat rises. It cannot be weaponized. Um, it is tremendously more efficient, and the byproducts can be mm. made into the fuel that goes right back into the reactor. It produces zero greenhouse gases. And people say to me all the time, so that sounds like a perfect fuel. I said, well, it's not the answer, but it is. A, it could be a powerful bridge. And I say this because we've already used this technology in the past. We've had thorium reactors in the, uh, from the 60s through the 80s. Yeah. We have in the United States. Uh, Russia and China are still using some. India is, or I've had them. India is using uh, two of them right now, I believe. And I list them in the book. I list the names and the locations in the book. And there is a movement to discredit the thorium technology. Um, and, you know, I'm not a, a tremendously political person. I, I like to deal with the facts. If we're serious about zero greenhouse gases and we want reliable energy, uh, this could be uh, a potential stepping stone in large population centers. And we still use renewables locally, you know, solar and wind where it makes sense, hydro, uh, geothermal where it makes sense. But those are not the, the answer for the world. And as climate continues to change, the availability of, uh, of the kind of sunlight in some parts of the world that we're used to uh, that that begins to change as well. So well, thorium is, is something to be considered some, in some places, uh, I think, seriously, and it's not taken seriously. In the West, it is in China and Russia. And Greg, our, our time is desperately running out. So, I mean, just, just um, to cover the, the high points, change is inevitable. Get over it. 
um, you have the ability to adapt and to be resilient and use your ingenuity to come up with new solutions on a personal level, on a community level, and on a national level. Uh, we have to be engaged in order to um, both educate ourselves and to uh, select the, the options that will best suit us as a society. And there are so many uh, initiatives going on today that will give us great inspiration. So look into Greg's book. He has resources in the back. He has a whole template for going through your own protocols of finding the areas in which you can be resilient within your own lives and communities. And possibly the, the key word here, Greg, would you agree, is community? It is community and it is localized living. Uh, to the degree that we can decentralize, localized economy, localized finances, localized source of energy and food, we are much more resilient to change when we become more more localized in the way that we create our, our good. Absolutely. Uh, so that and that's where community really comes in to support that. But before that ever happens, I think all of us uh, have the opportunity to to increase our baseline of resilience on, on a personal level. So as we teach ourselves to embrace more change in a healthy way, then it makes sense to extend that experience beyond our personal bodies into our families and our communities. And this is where all these things work together uh, to create resilience in a time of extremes, and that's what the turning point is all about. That's what The Turning Point is all about. And, Greg, your your website is gregbraden.com with two Gs? G-R-E-G-G-B-R-A-D-E-N dot com. It lists all of the events. Actually, we're booking into 2016 right now. So our, our 2015 events, uh, Sacred Journeys into Peru, where we get to see these principles in action, localized living in community in a really empowering way, uh, are all listed on there. And, Miriam, I want to thank you for 15 years of <laughs> and I working together. Uh, I always enjoy it tremendously. Our time passes very, very quickly. And if you have me back, I look forward to the next time. Absolutely. I would just like to point out that uh, Greg's tale is one of the tales in uh, What Wags the World, Tales of Conscious Awakening, um, my book. Anyway, I hope you will join us next week when my guest will be Temple Hayes discussing her book, When Did You Die? Eight Steps to Stop Dying Every Day and Start Waking Up. In the meantime, please visit New Consciousness Review on ncreview.com, and you can subscribe to our free multimedia magazine. Greg, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. It's always a pleasure. You're so welcome. I'm to thank you again, and I, I do look forward to the next time. I'm Miriam Knight. Thank you for listening. And until we meet again, be happy, be well, and let your light shine.